It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. D. Elton Trueblood once said, Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. And Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Well, Rick, our question is, is faith built on reason or is reason built on faith? And our theme text is found in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Dear friends, since I am eager to begin a letter to you on the subject of our common salvation, I find myself constrained to write and cheer you on to the vigorous defense of the faith delivered once for all to God's people. Okay, is faith built on reason or is reason built on faith? Coming up in today's podcast, is true faith mystical? Is is it something you just can't put your finger on that separates us from others? Throughout our conversation, we're going to look at mystical faith and see if it fulfills the biblical description of faith. What about faith and the science of the universe? Do the two agree? Well, you find out in segment two. How about this? Is the average person who doesn't believe in God okay with strong factual reason? Are they just okay if they have that? Learn what the Bible says their factual reason should show them. As a Christian, how do we balance our faith with reason? Can we go overboard one way or the other? Our final segment is going to lay out that answer, but first let's look at the surprising differences between people's definitions of faith. Religious faith is widely accepted as contrary to reason. It's assumed to be built upon mystical and even fantastical thinking. It's thought that religious faith, when put to a test of reasoned criticism, would fail miserably. This conclusion may be true regarding many different religious systems in our world. We cannot speak for any faith except Christianity and Judaism as taught in the Bible. Regarding biblical faith, it is our firm stance that it will not only stand up to a reason test, but is entirely dependent upon reason to exist. These conclusions are exactly opposite from what is generally accepted as true. To support them, we need to begin a reasoned look at what biblical faith is, how it's meant to work, and why it brings value to life. So, Rick, this is a good question. Is faith built on reason, or is reason built on faith? All right. So, to get started, though, Jonathan, let's do a little game of quote, shall we? All right. Is this next quote true of biblical faith? Mark Twain said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. (laughs) Very poetic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, Mark, buddy... (laughs) The next thing uh, you'll be saying in the day of judgment when Jesus calls you from your grave is, it is so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. You know, and, and, and see, but the thing is, the funny thing is that's part of the problem when we look at faith. And we're going we're gonna to discuss that right now. 
First, let's talk about what is reason. You know, everybody says, well, you know, you kind of know what reason is. Well, Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary, reason, Jonathan, definitions. It's, we'll take the first definition. There's like one, A, B, C, and D. Go ahead. A statement offered in explanation or justification. A rational ground or motive. The thing that makes some fact intelligible and lastly, a sufficient ground of explanation or a logic defense especially, something such as a principle or law that supports a conclusion or explains a fact. So basically, reason is what you'd think it is. You know, the second definition was really very, very appropriate. A rational ground or motive, or the third one, the thing that makes some fact intelligible. You have to have reason when you're working through facts, okay? So reason is what we all think it is. The dictionary.com definition for faith. Now let's listen carefully to what dictionary.com says faith is, and then we're going to compare it to what the Greek, ancient Greek definition of the word for faith is. Okay, dictionary.com, go ahead. Confidence or trust in a person or thing. Okay, that's the first. What's the second? Belief that is not based on proof. Uh-huh. What's the third? Belief in God or in the doctrines or teachings of religion. And the last one? Belief in anything as a code of ethics, standards of merit, etc. You know, it doesn't give you a sense that there's a basis other than the idea or the fact of believing. Yeah, there's no substance right. that they're sharing. Right, right. Okay, so that's what the, 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 the worldly definition of faith is in the world in which we live. Okay, and I will tell you right up front, that's where we begin to have a problem. Because now let's go to the ancient Greek definition from when the Bible was written, the word for faith. And it's interesting, the word for faith throughout the entire New Testament, wherever you see the word for faith, it's always this exact word. Uh, it's the, the Strong's number 4102. What's the definition? Persuasion, credence, conviction, reliance, and consistency. So there's a, there's, there, there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of basis there. Okay, you know, you've got this credence and conviction and reliance. It, it gives you much, oh, kind of like a more mature sense. If you look at McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia of the Bible, when you look up faith, one line really jumped out at me when they were defining faith. What is it? Psychologically, faith is the faculty of grasping evidence with the propensity to admit it when duly presented to the mind. See, so faith, according to Greek in the Bible, the New Testament, is completely different than faith as defined today. Because what he's saying is it's the faculty of grasping evidence, whereas the dictionary definition said belief that's not based on proof. And ask Mark Twain. You know, he'll tell you that <laughs> it's believing what you know ain't so. So there's a difference. And so for our practical purposes, we're focusing on the definition of faith from the Bible. A key point, biblical faith is not credulity. Now, credulity is not a word that most of us use. So what does that mean? A, a modern word. Readiness or willingness to believe, especially on slight or uncertain evidence. It's really gullibility. Right. And that's not what the faith of the Bible is. So, But it seems as though in today, today's world, that's the definition they're taking for the word faith. Right. But that, that's a misrepresentation 
of the faith in the Bible. So, and, and that's an important point. So, folks, when you are talking about faith to someone who doesn't have faith, and they're looking at you like, oh, this is a person of faith, realize that the definition they're using is not the same one as you are using, and maybe the best place to start is to say, hey, did you know that in the Bible, here's what faith means? Let's talk about it now. So, you know, just, just set, set the guidelines. I want to play a soundbite that we actually used in episode 759, What Drives Christian Faith, seven years ago. And I was, I was looking at that outline, and I saw this, and I kind of remembered it, and I thought, let me listen again. And it's just, it's an interesting take on a secular look at those of us who have faith. And it's a little bit mocking. No, it's a lot mocking, but listen to it, and then we'll comment. At the dawn of the 21st century, how would we possibly manage our lives without religion? Without religion, we would no longer have the benefit of ancient holy books to educate us about the origins and nature of the universe. We would instead have to rely on science alone. Without religion, we could no longer base our morality on Iron Age ethics and obedience to supernatural law. We would instead have to base morality on human well-being and define for ourselves what is good based on reason, compassion, and experience. Yeah, how's that going right now? I mean... (laughs) Not so good. No, you know what? We are more godless now than we have ever been. Okay, so seven years ago or 10 years ago, whenever this was put together at the dawn of the 21st century, well, we're now 20 years into the 21st century. And you look at it and say, how is it going? Well, you've taken God and put God to the side. How are we doing when we are all now clamoring to be the God of our own lives and and claim our own rights and our own brand of morality and our own brand of ethics? And if whatever is good for me is good for me. He sounded so idealistic. But look at the world around you, and you see how it crumbles without something higher. It just crumbles. Okay, so let's get to faith in in the Bible. There's two scriptures that help us see how the Bible actually defines faith. First one, Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Well, Rick, uh, why would we be certain of what we can't see? (laughs) Well, and that's part of faith. The idea is that you have a foundation that tells you enough about the things that you can see, so when that foundation explains something that you can't see, you're good. You say, well, because I already have the facts in order for the things that I can see, I know those must be true as well because it's, it's congruent with the foundation that I'm standing on. And we're going to develop that as we go, and, and, and that's what the Bible is. The Bible is our foundation of faith. Why? Because it teaches us facts. It teaches us a lot of things that we need to understand. So that's the first definition of faith in Scripture, Hebrews 11, 1, being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Next verse, Acts 17, verse 31. This is a great way to explain biblical faith. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And Rick, the word proof there is the same word for faith. 
See, now that's fascinating. Having furnished proof. When somebody furnishes proof, what they're furnishing is something to say, I can, I can make it make, uh, confirm what we're talking about because of this. There's substance to it. Exactly. Biblical faith, New Testament faith, has substance to it. Because he's talking about proof that, to all men that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why was that proof? Because people today look at it and say, oh, well, you know, it's just a fictional book. There were people, they were there. They saw what happened. They talked to Jesus afterwards. That's the proof. We have this incredible basis of proof. Biblical faith is conviction based on understanding and based on evidence. Biblical faith is based on reason. So now, our theme text that, uh, that you read at the beginning was from the book of Jude. It's a one-chapter book. Our theme text and its context are going to give us three levels at which the Bible shows us reason is a critical part of faith. Jude begins by warning of those who would subvert us from true Christian faith. He, he sets out to write something and decides he needs to write something else. So this is Jude, again, it's just one chapter. So verses 3 and 4 of that one chapter. Dear friends, since I am eager to begin a letter to you on the subject of our common salvation, I find myself constrained to write and cheer you on to the vigorous defense of the faith delivered once for all to God's people. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, men spoken of in ancient writings as predestined to this condemnation, ungodly men who pervert the grace of God into an excuse for immorality and disown Jesus Christ and our sovereign and Lord. Rick, I love this verse. In, in the book of Jude, one chapter, the plan of God is in, in our theme text in verse 3. He says, our common salvation, our faith is delivered once for all to God's people. That word, that phrase, once for all, I love that. He's repeating what Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18. He's saying the same words that Paul said in Romans 6.10 and also in Hebrews 10.12. I mean, once for all, Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, is right there, the original good news. And see, that's the point. There is the credence, the credibility. He's saying we've had the gospel delivered once for all. He's not the only one who says it. That's the gospel we need to vigorously defend. It's not vigorously defending your emotions. It's vigorously defending the facts of what has happened so we can repeat it and spread it to others. That's what he's talking about. So Jude's warning is to hold firmly to and strongly defend what you know to be the roots of true faith. Not the faith that we define these days, but the faith of the Bible. How does he tell us to do that? You check the facts and you defend them. So faith's instruction, Jonathan, as we wrap up this segment is what? Look to reason to establish and reestablish your basis. If we don't have reason, we can't have strong biblical faith. It just won't work. So here's the first problem. You mentioned the word faith, and people will think of two very different things. How does reason establish faith regarding the big things that are out of reach and knowledge? Personal Bible study is so rewarding. 
So many of our listeners have asked if we could provide an online Bible study course. We're happy to announce a new library of thoughtful questions based on each episode's CQ Rewind show notes. Each study is a compact, single page of thought-provoking questions with scripture references and more. These are perfect for your individual study or small groups. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on Bible study in the main menu to get started. What's next in our audio study, Rick? As humans who are limited to living on our tiny little planet Earth, we're constantly peering out into the universe to gain understanding and insight. Faith says God's fingerprints are all over what is out there. Reason says there's order, massive complexity, and unfathomable power out there. So we're looking at faith and reason in relation to the universe in this segment. Let's have some more fun, Rick. Is this a true biblical faith? Uh, is this true biblical faith? Here's a quote from Beatred uh, Russell. We may define faith as the firm belief in something for which there is no evidence. Where there is no evidence, no one speaks of faith. We do not speak of faith that two and two are four or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. Oh, come on, people. I'm sorry. You know... <laughs> <laughs> emotion for evidence? Yeah, I know. But see, again, Jonathan, that's what that's unfortunately the way so many in the world view those of us who are, say we are people of faith. They say that well, it's all about your emotions. It's all about how you feel. No, it's all about the evidence. And you know, he says in his quote, "Where there is evidence, no one speaks of faith." Really? Really? You know, doctors doctors know what they're doing, right? Sure. You know, you pee, and you go to a doctor because you want to be properly taken care of with your health, correct? Absolutely. So do you have faith in that doctor? Sure. <gasps> Shame on you. I mean, look, you have faith in... There's nothing wrong with having faith in something that has credibility. They go together. Scientists have faith in their hypotheses when they're trying to figure things out. Children have faith in their parents. People have faith in doctors. Doctors have faith in treatments and medication. And it goes on and on and on. So you know what? A quote like that, and I told you beforehand, see, this stuff gets me. It just gets <laughs> under my skin. You want to know how to get under Rick's skin? <laughs> this is how you do it. This is fun. Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> but um, okay, so let, let, let's move forward. Next thing actually kind of gets under my skin a little bit too, because Faith is interpreted in a lot of different ways. And we're talking to you very specifically, very scripturally about faith being based on reason. But there, are, there is a, a brand of Christianity that looks at faith in a very mystical sort of way. And so we want to examine that. We want to listen to that perspective and compare it to the other and see which fits biblical uh, uh, reasoning and biblical definition. So we're going to be listening to what is Christian mysticism from Holy Spirit moments from Kerry Walters. And he's talking about this mystical connection with God. He's talking, there's three characteristics. We'll take them one in each of our next three segments. So here are the three characteristics that it seems to me are more or less universal in Christian mysticism. The first characteristic is directness. I hinted at that just a second ago. The mystic is an individual who has such an intimate connection with God, such an intimate experience of God, that there's no mediation between her and God. Most of us get our knowledge of God, our understanding of God, and even our relationship with God secondhand. 
uh, we learn about God from sacred scripture, or we learn about God from uh, authorities such as pastors and theologians and perhaps philosophers, but we don't have that direct experience of God that is one of the hallmarks of mysticism. Okay, so Christian mysticism. First of all, to me, to be honest with you, those two words shouldn't be in the same sentence. I agree. Okay? But, you know, the idea is that you have this direct connection to God. Here's the problem. What do the scriptures say is necessary for a Christian to have a relationship with God? Jesus! Well, they have to, and then they are receiving the Holy Spirit when they follow in Jesus' footsteps. Right, but it goes through Jesus, our advocate, who represents us before God. Because face it, people, none of us can have a direct relationship with God. It is forbidden because of our sinfulness. So to me, that is a fundamentally sound challenge to this idea of a mystical Christian faith. Now look, I know there are those who adhere to that. That's fine for them, okay? But in the context of trying to understand faith according to Scripture, I just don't think it fits. Okay, so let's get back to Jude and, 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 and our discussion today. The, the three levels of our faith and reason exercise, and our faith and reason exercise that Jude provides us in, in, in verses 5 to 7, remember we read verses 3 and 4 last segment, are the example of, the three examples, first, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, second, the fallen angels, and third, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He reminds us in all three of these examples what happens when godly obedience is replaced with rebelliousness. So the themes are Israel's deliverance, the fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and the carryover in each story, if you will, each one-line story is disobedience replaced obedience, and, and you have rebelliousness as a result, and it hint, it never ends well. So we're going to take them out of order, because we want to associate each one of those with a place where we go to understand faith and reason. So we're going to begin with the oldest example, that of the fallen angels. So Jude chapter 1, we're going to jump down to verse 6. And angels who did not keep the position originally assigned to them, but deserted their own proper abode, he reserved in everlasting bonds, in darkness, in preparation for the judgment of the great day. Okay, so angels were punished for denying God. So what does this all have to do with faith and reason? Well, think about this. Angels are subject to obedience to God, just as we are. They have spiritually-based consequences for disobedience, just like we do. How do they know who God is and why? Well, first of all, they know God. Okay, that's a pretty that's special for thing. Sure. <laughs> okay, they use the reason capacity within their own thinking, their own ability to comprehend, and yet still some of them walked away because Satan drew them. And, and he gave angels free will just like he did mankind. Yes, and you know, and that's something that there's not enough conversation about. The angels have free will. They have choice. And that's why obedience ends up being so important, because you can't have obedience unless you have choice. This is part of the reason that establishes God as almighty, when you think about putting all of these things together. So we're looking at the spiritual realm here. That's kind of the theme. And we're going to end up talking about the universe as a result. Our next soundbite is going to be from Faith and Reason, from Dr. Uh, Gerard, uh, and I'm going to mess up his name, I apologize, Vershuren. 
um, I think is maybe, possibly, potentially, probably not how to say it. <laughs> okay, and, and he, he's a German doctor, so he's talking with an accent, but he's talking about faith and reason working together. Listen carefully. This, this soundbite is about uh, books of Scripture and the book of nature. So we have two books, and they both have the same author, the book of Scripture, and we have the book of nature. The book of Scripture tells us how to go to heaven, the book of nature tells us how the heavens go. St. Augustine said already centuries ago, it is the divine page that you must listen to, faith. It is the book of the universe that you must observe, reason and faith. The left side we have authorities on faith and the right side we have authorities on reason. Yet it's a match made in heaven because those two books have the same author. So faith and reason can never contradict each other. Discovering the truth through reason can never destroy faith, and discovering the truth through faith can never destroy reason. So let us be faithful in our reasoning and reasonable in our faith. And I love I love the way he puts it. Um, you know, he just he just helps you to understand that the book of nature and the holy word. Both have the same author. You know, and in that previous soundbite when he said, you know, we get, we get to, to know God secondhand through Holy Scripture. Well, wait a minute. That's the Word of God. I don't know if I would consider that secondhand, really. It's, you know, it's God's will written for humanity. That's a, that's a sacred, sacred communication piece. So here, he's talking about putting the two things together. So let's talk about the universe for just a few minutes. Job 38, verse 31. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Talking about constellations in the sky. Well, let's just look into a little bit of science on the Pleiades and then on Orion. So, Jonathan, first the Pleiades. This we got from Wikipedia. Computer simulations have shown that the Pleiades are probably formed from a compact configuration that resembles the Orion Nebula. Astronomers estimate that the cluster will survive for about 250 million years, after which it will disperse due to gravitational interactions with its galactic neighborhood. So really what it's saying is the Pleiades all came from the same cosmic reaction. And when it talks about the Pleiades, it talks about them as a unit. It's kind of interesting that the Bible frames it that way. Well, when Job talks about, or God is telling Job, can you bind the sweet influence— hold together the influence because it came from one place of the Pleiades? Or can you loose the bands of Orion? Let's go to uh, astronomytrek.com, just a few lines about the constellation Orion. Stars moving apart. The stars in Orion are gradually moving apart, but they are located at such great distances from us that the constellation will remain recognizable a long time after most of the other constellations whose stars are closer to Earth, have morphed into new shapes. So, really, the stars in Orion are moving apart. Job couldn't have known that. And yet, God is challenging Job, because Job is basically making judgments that he really shouldn't be. He's kind of stepping over his boundaries. And God says, wait, can you loose the bands of Orion? Can you bind, can you keep together the influence of the Pleiades? I can. I mean, this is definitely showing God's power 
and that the universe um, has order. Right. There's there there's a design in that order. And and see that's the important thing. There is a design in the order of the universe. Let's not forget that simple fact. Let's go a little bit further in Job. God is clear in his stated ownership and authority over the very movement of the stars. So not just those two. Job 38, the next two verses, talk about a few other constellations. Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? So he's talking about the constellations and how they have different positions during different seasons. And he's saying to Job, can you make that happen? I can. Can you? Just, just check in. Just see, you know, let's, let's do a little power comparison here. And, you know, and, and, and God is, is helping Job understand the vastness of what God can do. And he says in verse 33, don't, do you know the ordinances of heaven? Do you know the rules of heaven? What he's saying is the rules of, of cosmic nature are in place. There are laws of heaven? Yes, and that's why heaven is not chaotic. And, you know, as, 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 as astronomers view the universe, and, you know, of course you've got, you know, black holes and you've got stars forming and all that. That's not chaos. That's the creative process continuing to move. The thing is things don't crash into each other. You know, you don't have this, this, this chaos of stars, you know, creating these, these massive, massive uh, messes <laughs> in the universe. What the, the point is God has it in order. For those of us who, do, who won't believe in God, we must say that is all by chance. Really, the universe is awfully big to happen just by chance. It's awfully massive to have these things just by chance. So, Jonathan, when we look at this, fact and reason, what do we think? Well, the complexity and power and vastness of the universe is not chaotic. No, it's simply not. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 6. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visiteth him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So in Job, you had the, the rules of heaven. In Psalm chapter 8, the heavens are the work of the fingers of God. The, the moon and the stars, he put them there. It just gives, and then he says, what is man? Little tiny man that you're mindful of us. And folks, you got to think about that. With the, with the vastness of the universe, why us on this tiny speck that's on the back of a tiny speck, which is on the back of a tiny speck? How little we are, and yet how much attention God pays to us. That brings us to the faith part of looking at the universe. Faith's instruction is what? Realize this universal order and power is by design and is no way possible by chance. God's power, which dwells in the unknownable realm outside the universe, is in control. Can't happen by chance. It's in control. We've got the facts and the reason of the universe and the faith that says, Yes, we realize God is behind this. The magnitude of this thought is humbling as it reveals a God of massive power, creativity, and wisdom. The expanses of the universe are awe-inspiring, but what about facts and faith regarding our world? 
our CQ crew is always giving you podcast extras, like our exclusive weekly newsletter that highlights featured episodes you may not have discovered yet, video content you may not have seen yet, CQ Rewind show notes, extra Bible study questions, and social media highlights, all packed into an easy-to-follow email inbox delivery. Sign up now by texting CQ Rewind to the number 22828. That's CQ Rewind with no spaces. Text to the number 22828. We never sell or give away your information and you can unsubscribe at any time. It's easy. So just send us a text and you'll be subscribed. Because the universe is so far beyond human comprehension, we'll next focus on things more our own speed, our own physical earth. While it's full of wonders that humanity is only beginning to even realize, we still need to be aware that God's fingerprints are all over every aspect of nature. We've got to understand that. Is this true of biblical faith? We're having some more fun here. And this is a quote from Richard Dawkins. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Oh, now come on. Now just come on. You know, and look, you know what? Mr. Dawkins is an incredibly smart man. I give him that. And he's a well, well, well studied individual. He's a very famous atheist. But when it comes to understanding what faith is, he is clueless because he doesn't understand how scriptures work. He doesn't understand the reason behind the things that we believe. And it's a, and, and it's a shame. You know, it, it's not, faith is not a cop-out. As a matter of fact, to be able to step up in the world that we live in and be a person of faith, you call that a cop-out? I call that courage. For sure. <laughs> you know, because it is not the popular thing to be a person of faith. And especially, though, if your faith is founded on something that others don't even have a clue about because it's reasonable, but in an area they're not willing to look. And that's what we have. That's the difficulty we have here. Okay, let's get back to mystical faith in Christianity. And again, this is a perspective. Uh, We're going through it because it exists and it, it represents the other part or another part of Christianity that is out there. So this is from What is Christian Mysticism? Holy Spirit Moments from Kerry Walters. And the second characteristic of mystical faith is what he calls ecstasy. And following upon the directness of a mystical experience um, comes the second characteristic, ecstasy. Now, by ecstasy, I don't mean necessarily a feeling of sublimity or an emotional feeling of awe and majesty, although they may indeed accompany a mystical experience. No, what I mean is a rather more technical uh, uh, understanding of the term ecstasy. A mystical experience is one that takes us outside of ourselves. A mystical experience is one which diminishes our self-awareness, diminishes our ego, Uh, in order to open up all of our sensory apparatus to the presence of God. So a mystic will frequently, uh, for example, lose any sense of time or space uh, when she's in this direct relationship with the Lord. And quite frequently, she will have no way of 
afterwards talking about the relationship except in poetic ways or perhaps even abstract ways because in point of fact there was no knower there if you will to understand the relationship during the actual mystical experience <laughs> John, i was looking at your face you're going like what Wait, huh? i don't think i don't think i well see and the whole point of this is it transcends beyond reason and i and i got to tell you i got to tell you from personal experience I graduated high school when I was 17 years old. In my senior year, I had a philosophy class. Someday I'll tell some of the stories of how much trouble I got in that philosophy class. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, suffice to say that one of, the, one of the required books that we had to read was a book called Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences. It was written by Abraham Maslow. And I remember, I read the book. I'll never forget the book because this peak experience thing that he was describing, and he was going through all of this uh, documenting of all these different people in all of these incredibly different walks of life who'd have these peak experiences. And it's exactly what's being described here. It's exact, it has nothing to do with Christianity. That's my point. My point is, it's that internal something inside of some of us that, that, can, that, that, that we feel like can transcend beyond where we are, and it can be profound. I'm not doubting the profoundness of it, but I'm doubting the source, okay? He's talking about mystical Christianity, but I can submit to you evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence that it's all over in all kinds of cultures that are essentially God-less as well. So, got to be careful. That's why we stick so close to Scripture. So, let's get back to Scripture, back to level two of our faith and reason exercise. Level one was about the universe. It was about the angels, okay? This level two is the ability to recognize God uh, while we are unbelieving humans. The, the lesson is, you can still recognize him even in a state of unbelief. How is that? Well, let's take a look at what Jude says, and then we'll go to a few other things. Jude chapter one, verse seven. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns in the same manner, having been guilty of gross fornication and having gone astray in pursuit of unnatural vice, are now before us as a specimen of the fire of the ages in the punishment which they are undergoing. Okay, so he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction. And, and you know, Jonathan, you mentioned this, the fire of the ages. They're not being tormented and tortured. The no. idea... Fire is representative, not of torture, but of destruction. And we also know that Jesus himself said that in the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah will have a better time of it than some of the cities where he went and preached, indicating they have an opportunity. So let's keep that in perspective as we move forward here. The point is, they were unbelieving. They had opportunity. They knew Abraham. Okay, the kings of Sodom knew Abraham and they knew of his faith, but they wanted what they wanted. The human race in a godless state seeks what is convenient for itself. Never, in spite of all the altruism and human, humanitarian efforts of all of human history, have we risen above the smallness of our selfish needs. And as much as you want to be idealistic and say, well, without God, we can do and we can be, we always falter when it comes to ego and selfishness. Look at human history. As a matter of fact, human history has degraded Christianity by applying those same things within Christianity, and that's a travesty if you ask me. So we've got the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And they're going to bring us to the example of the physical earth and the physical world and what we should know even if we don't have faith. 
But before we do that, let's go back to Dr. Gerard Verschuren, Faith and Reason, and now he's going to talk about the law of nature and of cosmic design. Does science allow belief in God? What explains that this beautiful biological design works properly? The explanation is the laws of nature. They regulate what can be done and what cannot be done. What explains the laws of nature? I would say the cosmic design. We have reached the boundaries of science now, but science can never explain that there is order in this world. It has to assume it. It assumes that there is somehow a cosmic design of order and intelligibility and functionality. So if you ask me what explains the cosmic design, I have no better answer than saying there is a creator behind the cosmic design. And I think he nails it. You know, there is a cosmic design and people in the world of science don't like to say that it's, it's God or an intelligent designer because that's that for some reason they can't understand that faith and reason can actually work together here. And when you've got design that is beyond explanation and you attribute it to chance, I think, personally, this is a Rick opinion, I think you look foolish. You just look foolish because design is not by chance, by definition. The Bible, here's the interesting thing about atheism. The Bible actually defines atheism. Paul, in this context, is recalling the Ephesians, they're Christians now, before in their previous state of paganism. This is Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Rick, the word without God in the Greek is atheist. Yeah. That is where we get the word. And it simply means godless. Yeah. So it's interesting. He says, you were, before you came to Christ, you were without God and you had no hope. Now, by hope, he doesn't mean no hope for tomorrow, to wake up tomorrow or anything like that. He's talking about hope beyond this life, hope for a future beyond the few decades that we live. He's saying you had nothing. and there, There's no meaning, right. Rick. It's hopeless, and what a sad place to be. You know, I feel sorry for those that don't have hope. And, and we have hope because we have the scriptures which explain to us the past, the present, and the future. And by explaining those and how it works in the context of a design, an intelligent design and plan, it gives us hope because it makes sense. Not because it feels good, because it makes sense. Here's a test. For those who do not believe in God, does the following scripture appeal to blind faith or fact-based reason? Romans 1, 18 through 22, Paul is kind of upset here as he's talking about people who are ignoring God, if you will. Romans 1, and let's do uh, verses uh, 18 and 19 to start. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So he's saying these people are suppressing the truth. God made the truth evident. How could that possibly be? 
Well, he explains it, verses 20 through 22. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So Paul is saying, you have been given nature. You have been given God's creativity to observe and to, to, to respect, and you've ignored it. You have turned it into something dark because you don't want the credit to go beyond what you don't understand. And that's a powerful, powerful thought. We have, well, look at it this way. Here in the 21st century, we're now cracking the code of DNA. We're mapping cellular, cellular construction. We're exploring the interconnectedness of ecosystems. We use the power of the sun. We are grasping the incomprehensible laws of nature. I mean, the laws of nature are astounding in their complexity, and yet we can't admit that these laws are designed. Doesn't that sound foolish? It does. And that is what we're saying. The reason, when you look at the incredible depth of... We could spend hours talking about the structure of cells, the, the, the human form, the world, and all of these things. It's all designed. And Rick, you know, we're talking about the earth and, and the majesty all around us and humanity. But what about our conscience? knowing right from wrong, there is something within each and every person that knows better. Yeah, you know, how did that happen? Is that, it, how did that evolve, really? You see, you have to come to a point where you say, okay, we are so far beyond what previously was, if you believe in evolution, that there's got to be a disconnect somewhere where you gotta say, it's by choice, not by chance by design, not by, not by uh, a roll of the dice, so to speak. Let's go a little further, okay? What does the Bible tell us about this world that we live in? Psalm chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Okay, so we've got the fowl of... Go ahead. Yeah, I've got a question. This is King David, David. How could David understand currents living where he lived? Okay, because he talks about... In, in the seas. Yeah, the paths of the seas. Yeah. He's talking about the currents in the oceans. That's what he's talking about. Here's an interesting fun fact. David once went on a cruise, and he was cruising through the... I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't... <laughs> we have David's life entirely chronicled. He never traveled all that distance to the Atlantic Ocean to figure out the currents in the water. How did he know? God revealed it. How do we know that this is what was revealed? Interesting story of Matthew Maury, lived from 1806 to 1873. Jonathan, who is he and what did he do? Well, Rick, he's considered to be the father of oceanography. During a severe illness, when he was in bed for some time, he asked his son to read the Bible to him. While listening about the books of Psalms, he noticed the expression paths of the sea. Upon his recovery, Murray took God at his word and went looking for these paths. 
What Murray discovered was the ocean currents, a continuous directed movement of seawater in a specific pattern. This discovery and mapping of these currents led to a considerable developments in oceanography. He found the paths of the sea. Why? Because in Psalm chapter 8, verse 8, it said they were there. I don't know. Pure luck? Jonathan, come on. And the foul of the air, also in Psalm, we know the jet stream is there when migration takes place, but we didn't know that until aviation. So when you look at the Bible and you understand that it's got these little factoids all throughout, it's not meant to be a book of science, but it gives us enough to know that God is the inventor of science. So it gives us something to hold on to, to take the facts of science and say, and there's something even bigger. Job 36, verses 27 to 29, another scientific fact. For he draws up the, wa- uh, the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? So this is the cycle of how rain happens and the drawing of the moisture from the, from the waters of the earth up into the clouds and that cycle that we learned in science when we were in school. Job, thousands of years ago, describes it. How did he know? God told him. God let him know. Jonathan, this is why our faith is built on reason. There are factual things we look at and say, look at that. I mean, just another factual reason. Understand, Israel, of all the nations of the world, the cleanliness that they were instructed to have, they were aware of germs centuries before anybody else was. Now, they didn't know they were aware of germs. They knew that God told them about being clean, about washing all the time. When somebody was sick, they were separated for several days, then they had to wash. Nobody else did that. Curious, it must have been a coincidence. No, it's God showing us his sovereignty. Fact and reason, what do we have? The design of our planet, the laws of nature, and the breathtaking complexity of human form and intelligence unequivocally point to an intelligent design. And all of this in a sinful state. Imagine what the world would be like in a perfect state. One more scripture before we wrap up this segment, Psalm 139, 13 to 14. For you were formed, my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And Rick, I was thinking about this scripture, talk about in my mother's womb. I was thinking of when babies are born, how helpless they are when they're born. You know, it's amazing how helpless the human baby is in relation to so many other mammals and how long it takes for human babies to learn anything. And the fact is they have to learn everything. They don't have instinct. If we evolved, don't you think that the instinct would have been the thing that would, hey, I know, preserve the, 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 uh, the, the life of the, the, those who are the, fit, the survival of the fittest? But yet the instinct is gone. Why? Because God created us this way. Why? To show us the value of ourselves to show us the value of us in his eyes. So he made it so we had to coddle and protect and develop and teach at every step of the way. You think about that. It's an amazing testimony to God. Faith's instruction, what do we have? We must always give credit for those things beyond the scope of nature's laws to the intelligent designer. He has revealed himself 
are we looking? Hmm. He has revealed himself. He's given us reason to see him. Are we, in fact, looking? With all this intelligent design revealed, it seems those critical of faith are the ones who need to look deeper. Our faith thrives on universal and physical facts and laws. What about faith, facts, and spirituality? Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on the Bible study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions. To a Christian, seeing the power of natural laws at work feeds our faith. When we think about our own lives and our own direction, the same principles of obedience and appropriate actions apply. We always need to have sound reason, sound facts on which to build our faith. We have to have the reason as a basis for Christian faith. All right. Is this true of biblical faith? Another quote. Another quote from William Clifford. It is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Now you finally got one. (laughs) Yay. You You agree. Yes. See, (laughs) the, the point is, faith is something that you can look to and say there's a reason for it. It's not this emotional, flaky kind of thing that just kind of happens uh, as an experience of life, it is a it is part of the growth and development of our mind as well as our heart. Having said that, let's go back to the third characteristic of mystical faith within Christianity. This is what is Christian mysticism, Holy Spirit moments, Carrie Walters. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if these are real words, but he talk, talks about this third characteristic, characteristic as being noetic. Never heard of that as a word. You know, I've, I've been known to make up words, okay? So, oh, yes. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, I don't know. But anyway, let's listen. But having said that, there's a third characteristic of a mystical experience that's important to keep in mind. It is noetic. That is to say, it is a form of knowing, even though it's not any kind of knowing that you and I are uh, used to. Uh, It's not a knowing in which the I or the knower is central. It's not a knowing that can be easily explained afterwards. It's not a knowing that we can somehow add to the entire uh, bank load of our knowledge um, and work into it easily. No, the noesis or the knowledge that comes from a mystical experience is one that is transformative of the person who has the experience, but isn't easily articulable, isn't easily shareable with other people. It is a kind of unknowing knowing, if you will. And I know that that may sound paradoxical and may even seem like a cop-out to you, but mystics will insist that there is a kind of knowledge that is imparted to them, even though they're not there, during the mystical experience that is supremely illuminative, supremely enlightened. Okay, and you know, I've just got to go back to that book that I read when I was in high school and I was 17, Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences. This is exactly what Abraham Maslow was describing in any culture throughout the world, and he was saying it's a universal human experience potential. And honestly and truly, because it does not fit into the way the scriptures describe faith, I look at it, I'm not doubting people have the experience, okay, not at all. 
What I am doubting is the source of the experience being actually from Jehovah God, Almighty Creator, versus from what the human form is capable of in certain kinds of minds. And I'm not saying it's not a good experience by any stretch of the imagination, just saying that it's different. It's different. Okay, let's get back to Scripture. Back to level three of our faith and reason exercise, our responsibility to faith and reason as God's chosen. So we looked at the universe we, you know, with the angels. We looked at uh, the world with Sodom and Gomorrah and choices of those on the outside. Now we look at ourselves, those who are called of God. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude is reminding the body of Christ, Christianity, that remember, right after Israel was rescued from years and years and years and years of slavery, some rebelled against God and they end up being destroyed. They were just released. God's deliverance from bondage of sin was obvious, and yet they turned on him. We can appreciate it, God's deliverance, or we can squander it. That goes for us as well. So in this segment, we're going to look at the reason that we need as Christians outside of the physical earth, outside of the universe, and the, the physical form of man. There's something else that we need. Let's go back to Faith and Reason with Dr. Gerard Verscheren. Uh, faith needs science, and science needs faith. Science only deals with what can be counted and measured, whereas religion is about other things in life that count but cannot be counted. Science may be everywhere, but it's certainly not all there is. There is more to life than science, and that's where religion, faith, and creation come in. Science has a piecemeal approach by dissecting things into smaller and smaller pieces. They dissect, and religion puts all these things back together again. So please don't turn science into a pseudo-religion and don't let religion become a semi-science. Reason requires faith, and faith requires reason. If you deny the left side, the right side will say faith also requires reason. If you deny the right side, science and reason will tell you that faith is needed. We need them both, faith and reason. Science could never silence religion, and religion could never silence science. And I think that's really, Jonathan, where we want to, where we want to focus this. Science cannot silence faith, and faith cannot silence science. The two must exist together. And thank God that his holy book gives us the ability to connect those two dots that so many people say, oh, no, you either believe in the Bible or you believe in science. No, 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 no. No, no, you've got to understand things in the bigger picture. Christian faith needs the reason. Now, let, let's go now to ourselves. Christian faith needs the reason of prophecy fulfilled to give it foundation. So we, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on prophecies, Jonathan. We're just going to talk about two tiny little prophecies, just two tiny, tiny ones, to give us a sense of why our, our faith has reason. This first one is about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, first stated in Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Erephthah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you one who will go forth to me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are for a long time from the days of eternity. Okay, so from you, Bethlehem, will go forth 
the ruler of Israel. Now we go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... Okay, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Coincidence. You could say, well, you know, they planned that. Okay. No, they didn't, but okay. <laughs> you know, let's, <laughs> let, let's go with it. What about the manner of Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem? It was first talked about in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you've got Zechariah describing the, the, the triumph, if you will, of, of, of the Messiah. John chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it was written. And as it was written, goes back to that prophecy. So he did exactly what the prophecy said. He said, well, Jesus would know that. And so he'd do it. Yes. But what about the 400,000 people that were surrounding him, shouting Hosanna, claiming him as their king? He couldn't plan that. He didn't have Twitter at that, at that time, okay? And it just gives you a sense that prophecies are fulfilled. They're spoken of, and then it happens. And, and Rick, I've got a, a, a sheet in front of me of 44 prophecies Jesus Christ fulfilled. We got this from a good friend of ours, David Stein, who's been a guest on our, on our podcast. And it is amazing. You can't fake this. It, it is amazing. He fulfilled everything that was required of him, and, and it was a beautiful thing. And those are just the prophecies regarding Jesus. What about yes. the prophecies regarding Israel? What about the prophecies regarding the kingdom? What about the prophecies regarding resurrection, the time of trouble, the time of the end? What about all of those? The Bible is full of what has happened and talking about what will happen, and you can trace how you go from what has to what is to what will be. That's the reason we can have such strong Christian faith. Fact and reason for this, Jonathan. The presence of prophecy fulfilled establishes a solid foundation for faith needed to become part of a prophecy not yet fulfilled. Understand that the call of Christianity is to become part of other prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled. That is the privilege, and that's where our faith brings us, because we have all of the fulfillments that give us the foundation to say, God said it, it's going to happen. So we can stand on those prophecies. Christian faith is developed through testing. Reason demands that we examine and understand the why of our experiences. And funny thing, that's what the Bible requires of us as well. James 1, 2-6. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Jonathan, faith is not an emotion here. You know, you don't produce uh, endurance by, by, by testing your emotion. You have to have the determination, the maturity, the skills to be able to develop, to mature, to grow, to do, to act, to be courageous. That's what the testing of our faith is about and it's based on reason. Let's finish that text. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Rick, the verse says to ask God for more wisdom. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's not a mystical receiving of wisdom like poof, magic. God will bless us if he sees our desire is sincere and as we strive to study his word. His Holy Spirit is his power and influence in our lives and can help us by showing connections in his word we may have never seen before. He can also help us to see scriptural harmony in his plan of salvation for all. And God can direct us to other trusted resources that can expand our thinking as well. But we have to do our part. So you're saying that you pray for wisdom, but just it's not, you're not endowed with it. You have to work towards it. Correct. See, and I really think that the beginning of this is not that you wake up wise. You begin to wake up not endowed with wisdom, but you wake up realizing your ignorance. And that gives you a place to start. It's a growth process. Wisdom is always a growth process for us as Christians. Finally, Christian faith is evidenced in the testimony of our lives. And there's reason behind this. Reason demands we live what we believe and um, not just accept it emotionally. Again, it's not an emotional thing we're talking about. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, you see, the whole idea of faith in a Christian environment is that of something like you were saying at the very beginning, has conviction, has depth, has substance. And our faith should be such that it has so much behind it that it provokes us to live it. See, emotion doesn't do that. Emotion feels good. We also, our faith, we have to let it shine out of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how do you do that? By letting it shine in first, by receiving the reason, by receiving the scriptures, receiving the knowledge, and watching the providence, and then moving forward as a result. So faith's final instruction for this podcast, Jonathan, is what? We must work at our faith as it is not a feeling but a way of life. Genuine Christian faith is only built upon the solid foundation of that which is true. Seek truth. Build faith. We have to work at faith because it has to be a way of life. It is not based on how you feel. Faith needs reason. Reason needs faith. Final scripture, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You don't accurately handle the word of truth because you're emotional about it. You accurately handle the word of truth because you are mature in your deciding to understand the word of God and the will of God and the ways of God so that you can be a godly person That's what our faith is. When we talk about transformative faith, we're talking about a faith that has to grow inside of you because it has things to stand on and it builds a foundation for a character that can be a footstep follower of Jesus. And what happens there? Eventually, you change the world. 
That's what faith, that's what reason do when they're put together in the life of a Christian. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. And now, coming up next week, do I treat you as my neighbor? Yeah, you know, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. We'll be talking about the Good Samaritan probably in a way that you've never heard it spoken about before. This is a story that Jesus spoke to change the lives of the people who would listen. Talk to you next week.